Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. We're going to read Matthew 12, verses 30 through 32 together. Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, Light topic this morning. Light, cheery topic, and to talk about the unpardonable sin. Why, you may ask. Why are we doing that? Uh, You know, very simply, um, whenever I'm in a forum, when I can open it up for questions, anything biblical, theological that people want to talk about, uh, this passage in Matthew chapter 12 almost always comes up. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? What is the unpardonable sin? Could I commit it? Have I already committed it? What is it? What's going on? What is Jesus talking about? If you look at the history of the church's teaching on this passage, uh, it's really confusing. Let me give you just a a real brief overview of where the church has moved around from place to place theologically on this passage. Second century, Irenaeus believed that the unpardonable sin was simply a lack of response to the gospel. So if a non-Christian heard the gospel and didn't believe in the gospel, that was the unpardonable sin. Later, Origen, writing in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, believed that it was a post-conversion relapse into sin. So it was something that a Christian could do, subsequent to conversion, going back and sinning. Augustine, writing a little later, 4th and 5th century, believed that this passage was the foundation for the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, Many centuries later, John Bunyan, writing in 1666, uh, he struggled with this passage personally. How it personally applied to him. Let me read to you from uh, one of his works. You know John Bunyan from Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. In it he wrote, I feared therefore that this wicked sin of mine might be that sin unpardonable. This is after he had believed that Jesus had died for his sins. He wondered if he had committed some sin that in fact was unpardonable and he had lost his relationship with Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, Now I was uh, both a burden and a terror to myself, nor did I ever so know as now what it was to be weary of my life and yet afraid to die. Oh, how gladly now would I have been anybody but myself, anything but a man and in any condition but mine own. For there was nothing did pass more frequently over my mind than that it was impossible for me to be forgiven my transgression and to be saved from the wrath to come. He goes on. What, thought I, is there but one sin that is unpardonable? But one sin that layeth the soul without the reach of God's mercy? And must I be guilty of that? Must it needs be that? Is there but one sin among so many millions of sins for which there is no forgiveness? And I must commit that? Oh, unhappy sin. Oh, unhappy man. I guess. (laughs) Wow. These things would so break and confound my spirit that I could not tell what to do. I thought at times they would have broke my wits. In other words, he thought he was going to lose his mind because he was so distraught that he might have committed this unpardonable sin. And if you read the book, he goes on for page after page after page. I got worn out. 
He just keeps going on and on and on. And he's trying to compare himself to different biblical characters to understand, is that me? You know, is my sin more like David's sin and he was forgiven and that was really bad sin? Or maybe like Solomon's and all those wives and adultery. Maybe, maybe that was my sin and he was forgiven. Or maybe I, maybe I was like Judas. He wasn't forgiven. He just wrestled. He was totally tormented with this. It goes on and on and on and on. And so really understanding this passage can have very practical effect on us. Maybe one of two ways. If one or more of these guys is right, then a lot of us might be in trouble. (laughs) Or if they're wrong, we might experience a great deal of relief that we could not commit the unpardonable sin and we're safe in Jesus' arms. So we're going to look at Christ's teaching on the unpardonable sin. In order to do that, I want us to kind of get a running start We're going to look at the context of Matthew chapter 12, and the way that we're going to do that is um, I'm going to give you an overview of the whole book, okay? So if you're taking notes, write fast, right? And the slides will actually be on the, on our website if you want to, uh, if you miss something, you want to go back and get it, okay? This is the book in a snapshot, three sections. First section is the king revealed, chapters 1 through 11. Then the king rejected Chapters 12, beginning in 12, ultimately chapter 27, his crucifixion. Chapter 28, God raises him from the dead, and it is demonstrated that Jesus the king is victorious. Okay, so it breaks down into three sections. King revealed, king rejected, and king victorious. Now what I want to do is I want to look a lot more closely at that first section, chapters 1 through 11, the king revealed. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Chapters 1 through 2 marks the arrival of God's king on earth. Chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's a whole Bible study right there. that, That one verse is packed theologically. The record of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Tell me again, what does Messiah mean? Literally. Anointed one, exactly. One who's been anointed with oil, the image being that is the one who is God's chosen king. Okay? So, right out of the chute, Matthew says, what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about Jesus, God's king. Matthew is written to the Jews, and it is written to prove that Jesus is God's Messiah, God's anointed one, God's king. He is the son of David, because God's king on earth ruling through Israel over all nations, comes from the lineage of David. So he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. That is, he is the heirs of, heir of Abraham's promises that he would be a blessing to all nations. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And then Matthew goes on and he writes out the genealogy to prove that Jesus came from the lineage of David. He has a right to rule and he came from the seed of Abraham. He has a right to rule over the Jews and then ultimately over all nations. Okay, so the genealogy is enormously significant. That's what Matthew is targeted toward. Jesus, God's king. Now, turn with me to chapter 2, verse 1. Where will that king come from? Well, we were told in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and so the prophecy is fulfilled. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi came from the east and arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Magi, wise men, 
Astronomers who were living in the east were given a sign by God, and that sign proved to them in the stars that this one who's going to be born will be king of the Jews. Okay, again, notice, this is Matthew's point. I'm going to prove to you that this Jesus is king of the Jews. Begins chapters 1 through 2 with the arrival of the king. Next section, beginning chapter 3, is the preparation of the subjects, okay, or those over whom Jesus will rule. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Get the people prepared to receive God's king. And John the Baptist comes in the power of the Spirit, according to the prophecy of Isaiah and the prophecy of Malachi, getting the people ready to receive Jesus as king. And he preaches to them, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's about to reveal his kingdom. It's happening right now. Third major section is the preparation of the king himself. That is his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. You remember uh, when we began our series, we talked about the significance of Jesus' baptism is not that he needed sins to be removed, but that he was identifying himself with John's message. John's message that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom's about to be here. And Jesus comes and he says, I identify with that message. I, I am that one. And as he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends upon him in a bodily form like a dove. And God's voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Son of God was a title for God's king. David was called the Son of God. This is my son. This is my king. Then he sends him out into the wilderness and he's tempted and tested by the devil to prove that he has the moral right to rule over God's people. He passes every test, every temptation. This is the king. Okay, it's been validated. Fourth section. The unveiling of the king. This is the major part of those first 11 chapters. It's a little difficult to read, so I'll tell you it's 412 through 1124. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching the same message that John is preaching. The kingdom's about to come. The kingdom's about to come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Okay, here's the the king is coming. And then he goes on in chapter five through seven and he begins to teach principles of the kingdom. Okay, principles of the kingdom. Look, chapter five, verse one. Jesus saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? It's kingdom, 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 kingdom. Jesus is now teaching. He's proving through his teaching that he is the one who can explain and bring God's kingdom. Now notice at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people's response, chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes had been teaching them. And what we see begin to happen is a confrontation is starting to build. Because the spiritual leadership was failing. 
They couldn't lead God's people into the kingdom. Jesus is demonstrating through his teaching that he is very, very different. And the people notice it is so obvious. They say, wow, this is really, really different teaching. Then in chapters 8 through 9, Jesus turns and he begins to perform miracle after miracle after miracle. And Matthew records these because they offer physical proof that Jesus is, in fact, God's king. Because when Messiah would come, it was prophesied that he would bring these miracles. So notice chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Jesus came down from the mountain after he had been teaching, and large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, sir, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Chapters 8 through 9, you see one miracle after another miracle. Then in chapter 10, Jesus gathers his inner circle of disciples together and he sends them out and he says, I want you to go proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you to go out in my name because I am the king. And in Jesus' name, I want you to do the same things I've done. I want you to perform the same kinds of miracles in my name, proving that I am the king. In chapter 10, people are sent out throughout all of Israel and they are proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Notice, Chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any of the cities of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is not the great commission. Remember, we talked about this. He didn't send them out to all nations yet. He said, go to Israel because I'm presenting myself as the king of Israel. So go there and see, will they accept me? Will they accept me? And Matthew is building to this point, okay, of Jesus offering himself as the king to Israel. Look at chapter 11, the very end, verse 28. Start in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, okay, sovereign over all, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Okay, all authority over heaven and earth has been handed to me. And no one knows the Son except the Father, Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, when you hear the word rest, what do you think of? I mean, you're, you're just cruising through your Bible and you read it quickly. What do you think? Oh, man, Jesus is going to give me a nap, right? I <laughs> rest, sleep. That's, you know, that's just such a common word in our everyday usage that we fail to recognize that it is packed with theological significance. For a Jew, the biblical theology of rest had nothing to do with taking a nap. It had nothing to do with physically lying down. It was a, it was a kingdom term. When Israel was walking around in the wilderness... They had no rest. 
It was hot and dusty and dry, and they were always worried, would there be enough to eat? Would there be enough to drink? It was a miserable existence. There was no rest. And what they hoped for was entrance into the promised land. And when they listened to God's voice and they walked in humble obedience to him, Joshua took them in, they conquered their enemies, and they experienced rest. Okay, conquest of the land was a picture of rest. The, the joyful celebration of God's blessing on the land. Our enemies have been removed and now we're beginning to plant vineyards and enjoy the fruit of the vineyards and we're enjoying the olive trees and our, our animals are bearing livestock and there's abundance in the land. We are blessed by God. That is rest. And the conquest of the promised land was a prefiguring of the ultimate kingdom when God would send the ultimate king and fully and finally remove all of his own enemies from the face of the earth and all peoples would come to Jerusalem and they would worship God. And there would be physical abundance and spiritual abundance. The conquest was a picture of Davidic kingdom. And every week, God said, I want you to be reminded of this. So every week you're going to stop what you do and you're going to focus upon my blessings by worshiping me. That's called the Sabbath. Okay, Sabbath rest. A weekly prefiguring of the kingdom of God being restored to the nation of Israel and to all peoples. So when Jesus says, I will be the one to give you rest, he's saying, I will be the one to bring in the kingdom. So underline rest and write kingdom blessings out in the margin. Now let's read it again with that in mind. Verse 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They were weary and heavy laden, just like the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness. They were under Roman oppression. Their spiritual leaders were oppressing them. They, they were laying this burden of a bad interpretation of the law upon them. Legalism, they were, they were not resting. They were weary. And Jesus says, anyone, here is my open invitation. Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I will be the one who will bring you God's kingdom blessings. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, rest is not salvation. Rest is the kingdom blessings of God. And Jesus is offering these to the nation of Israel. And you probably have noticed that all of Matthew 12 happens on a Sabbath. Jesus teaches and he does miracles on the Sabbath to prove that he is Lord over the Sabbath. Okay? He is Lord over the rest period that God has offered. He is the king of Israel. Will they believe him or will they not? Chapter 11 is the, is the apex of the book. He makes his offer and then what happens in chapter 12 is that the nation officially rejects him. You probably read the story before, right? Okay. Offer of the king, the nation rejects him in chapter 12. But the rejection has actually been building. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. Turn back with me, chapter 9 and verse 30. I should start in verse 28. It says, he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you believe that I'm able to give you sight? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. Why didn't he go out and say, Preach this to all nations? Well, because 
it wasn't quite yet time for the confrontation. Okay, so don't go out and proclaim it yet. It's not time for the confrontation just yet. They went out anyways and spread the news about him throughout the land. As they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, grumble, grumble, grumble. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Okay, so opposition is beginning to build. The Pharisees are beginning to say, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. It goes on, verse 35, it says, Jesus was going throughout all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Didn't they have shepherds? Yes, they did. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the Levites were to be their shepherds, but they were not leading the people. They were not leading the people. And if you've ever looked at this passage closely, this word for dispirited and and distressed means they were flaying the sheep. They weren't caring for the sheep. They were abusing the sheep. Instead of leading the sheep into blessing, they were taking any blessing that the sheep had and they were taking it away from And Jesus looks out at them and he has compassion for them because they lack a shepherd. And he wants to be that shepherd. He wants to be that shepherd. And so this confrontation is building with Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus said, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John... That is, they were all pointing this direction. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. If you are willing to accept it, John is the one who's preparing the way, the one who was prophesied in Malachi to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare my way. I'm about to offer myself as king. Will you accept me? Will you accept me or will you not? You know the story they do not. But the climactic confrontation comes in chapter 12, verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Okay, look at that again. He's a demon-possessed man. He's also blind, and he's mute. There's everything broken with this guy. And Jesus has done other miracles on people who are blind or mute or demon-possessed or some combinations. This guy's blind, mute, and demon-possessed. He is completely broken. And Jesus, right in front of the people, completely, instantaneously, and permanently heals this man. It is an undeniable miracle. Verse 23, all the crowds were amazed and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? The crowds are beginning to get it. He's He's the one. This is God's king, and they're drifting that direction, and the spiritual leadership of the nation doesn't like that at all, and they're going to try to pull the people back. So they say in verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, ruler of the demons, and they ascribe Jesus' miracles to the power of Satan, and they reject him. Notice in verse 30, he says, he who is not with me is against me, he who does not gather with me scatters. There are only 
two options. Either you are with Jesus or you are against Jesus. And the spiritual leadership says, no, we are against Jesus. And they make a decision on behalf of the nation, since they are the spiritual leadership, to reject Jesus Christ. You have representatives. You, you elect these representatives, and they can make ordinances and laws on your behalf that affect you. They have that authority. And you have governing officials who can sign treaties with other nations on your behalf that affect you because they represent you. The priests and the Pharisees and the scribes represented the people. And they make a decision at this point in Matthew chapter 12 to reject Jesus Christ. They will not allow him to replace them as the shepherd, the chief shepherd of Israel. And so they reject him. Say, this man will not be king over us. So we reach the apex at his offer in chapter 11. Chapter 12, everything goes downhill. Okay? And Jesus no longer tells the people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ever. He doesn't tell them that again. Instead, he begins to proclaim mysteries of the kingdom. The kingdom's not going to look like what we anticipated because you have rejected Jesus. He begins to predict his own rejection by the nation, the fact that they will actually kill him and crucify him. And he begins to pronounce condemnation upon the nation because they have rejected him. These are the consequences for that rejection. Look with me in chapter 12, 12, verse 41. It says, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, and they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This generation is going to be under judgment. What's that judgment going to look like? Turn with me to chapter 21 of Matthew and verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall all around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. The landowner is God. He owns all things. He plants a vineyard. That's the promised land. Okay? And there are vine growers who are uh, the leaders and, of Israel and, and the Israelites. Okay? Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves, that is the prophets, to the vine growers to receive his produce, that is, rightful worship. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. This is how Israel responded to her prophets. Again, he sent another group of slaves or prophets larger than the first. They did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son, saying, surely they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? People listening said to Jesus, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. He'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And the people understood the basic idea of the parable, but they didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone, that is Jesus, which the builders, that is the spiritual leadership of Israel, rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. Is it not marvelous in our eyes? 
Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now notice verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was talking about them. You're out, Jesus is saying. Because you have rejected me as Messiah, you will be out. You will be cast out. Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. There are other consequences as well. Turn to chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Same point he made in the parable. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house, that is your nation, your people is being left to you desolate. You will be scattered. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the prophecy of Zechariah of the second coming of Jesus when he brings the day of the Lord. He said, you're not going to see me again until that point in time. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus came out from the temple, was going away. When his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, he said to them, do you not see all these things? Do you not see them as they really are? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Your temple will be destroyed. Your nation will be scattered. Your leadership will be judged because you have rejected me. Now turn to the gospel of Luke with me in verse 19. Luke 19, verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace or shalom, which make for the blessings of God, rest, the kingdom of heaven, if you had known that, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. They have been rescinded. The offer is taken back because you've rejected me. For the days will come instead when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That is, when God sent his king to you and you rejected him. You will be judged. There are consequences for it. And so Jesus stops preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He stops saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He begins proclaiming mysteries of the kingdom and prophesying his rejection by the kingdom and then proclaiming judgment upon the nation, specifically upon the leaders of Israel. So all that's background. Okay, all that's context. What is the unpardonable sin? Let's go back to chapter 12. Of Matthew. Verse 31. Let's go back and read. Beginning in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this. They said this man casts out demons. By only by Beelzebul the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts. Jesus said to them. Any kingdom divided against itself. Is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself. Will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan. He is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. This is the unpardonable sin. It is crediting Jesus' miracles to the power of Satan, or in other words, ascribing the Spirit's work to God's adversary, the devil. That is the unpardonable sin. In the face of incontrovertible evidence, a miracle of a man who is blind and mute and demon-possessed, who is completely and utterly and irreversibly healed by God, they say, no, that's not God. That is the power of Satan. That is the power of the ruler of, of, of all of the demons. That's Beelzebul. And the leadership officially rejects Jesus Christ. This is the unpardonable sin. Okay? Notice in verse 32, he goes on, he says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So what is Jesus saying? Is it worse to speak a word against the Spirit than against the Son of Man? What he's talking about is a difference of degrees. While Jesus was on the earth and he was proclaiming his message and inviting people to believe in him, some did not believe, did they? Hey, most did not believe. Many doubted, some were confused. A lot did not believe. There was still hope for them. After Jesus was raised from the dead, we had thousands believing in Jesus. Eventually, even Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul. So in other words, disbelief still allowed for hope. But this was an official proclamation by the leadership of Israel in rejecting Jesus to call the Spirit of God Satan. And so Jesus calls down an authoritative pronouncement of judgment upon the spiritual leadership saying, this sin will never be forgiven, not in this age and not in the age to come. And the consequences will be permanent for you. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin. So the big question is then, can someone commit the unpardonable sin today? And the answer is no, no. The unpardonable sin that is described in Matthew chapter 12 cannot be committed today because the circumstances don't remain any longer. It was for this generation and specifically this group of people, spiritual leadership, who saw the miracles of Jesus and said, that's not God, that's Satan. And Jesus pronounces judgment. He has the authority to do so. That is the unpardonable sin. You can't commit what happened in Matthew chapter 12. And nor can I. That doesn't answer all our questions, though. Okay. Can a person who does not or has not yet believed in Jesus commit any other unpardonable sins? Okay. Are, there, are there other sins that a person might commit that would not be pardoned? I want you to turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 16. Maybe you've read it before. John 3. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have 
eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. There's only one sin, in a sense, that will not be ultimately forgiven, and that is choosing to disbelieve in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, the reason that a person spends eternity separated from God is not because of all the bad sins that they've done in their life, nor is it because they're non-elect. It is because they've chosen not to believe. They've chosen not to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's what causes a person to be separated from God forever. Now, tragically, tragically, the debt of all their sin has already been paid for. Pardon has been issued, but pardon has to be received through faith. And if a person doesn't receive that pardon, the sin remains upon them. The debt remains upon them. Let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, back in 1833, there's a man named George Wilson who robbed the U.S. mail. He was uh, caught, convicted, and sentenced to be hanged. But Andrew Jackson issued him a pardon. George Wilson, for whatever reason, rejected his own pardon. He said, I will not be pardoned. Instead, I choose to take my sentence. I will be hanged. Well, his pardon in this issue went into the Court of Appeals, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And Chief Justice Marshall issued the following opinion on behalf of the court. He said, a pardon is an act of grace. Undeserved. The person has been convicted. They don't deserve this, but a president can give them grace, give them what they don't deserve, can remove that debt from them. The consequence can be removed. It's purely an act of grace. A pardon is a deed, a contract, to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a a court to force it on him. See the point? Chief Justice Marshall said, the president can issue a decree of pardon, but for it to be complete, it has to be accepted. And if it be rejected, the court can't force it upon him. The court can't say, George Wilson, in spite of yourself, you're going to live. No, the sentence stands because George Wilson has not accepted the pardon. And the same is true with us. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. Every sin of every person who is here right now has been paid for. But you have to personally say, God, I accept the pardon for my sin. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, God, thank you for issuing my pardon through Christ. Thank you for paying the debt of my sin through Christ. I accept. And when you do that, paid in full is stamped upon you. Pardon received. Pardon issued. Pardon received. And you have the debt of your sin removed and you have eternal life. And the only thing that keeps a person separated from God is choosing not to receive the pardon of Christ. And so I encourage you, if you have never said, God, I accept that pardon on my behalf, Let me encourage you to do so this morning. Say, God, thank you. Thank you for freeing me in Christ. I accept. That is the gospel message. You can't earn it. It is, as Chief Justice Marshall said, it's an act of grace. Completely undeserved. Accomplished by God for us through Christ. So can 
there be an unpardonable sin? Well, the sin has been pardoned. It might not be accepted. Another related question, though, before we end. Can a Christian commit any other unpardonable sin? Okay, let's say I've accepted the pardon of Christ. But then I go on in my life and I do something else. Can I commit another unpardonable sin? Maybe not exactly the same one that happened in Matthew chapter 12, but could I commit something that would cause me to be once again separated from God, my pardon revoked? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is the doctrine of eternal security. Let me just note, Matthew chapter 12 has nothing to say about that topic whatsoever. It, it doesn't, Matthew chapter 12 doesn't apply to that. But there is an enormous body of scripture that tells us That as believers in Jesus Christ, once we belong to Christ, he holds us firmly in his hand. And we cannot be separated. Are there consequences for sins of the believer? Absolutely. God longs for his people to be holy, to be like him. And so when we sin, God the Father, as a good father, comes after us and he disciplines us in his kindness to draw us back into fellowship and he disciplines and he disciplines. And in the New Testament, you see some folks who he disciplined even to the point of ending their lives on earth because they choose to repent, they refuse to repent. So there are consequences for the believer when we sin, but that consequence is never that we lose eternal life. Look with one other, one other passage with me, John chapter 6. Verse 37, and notice what Jesus says on this topic. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I won't lose any of those that God gave to me. I won't lose them. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, that's not a motivation for us to be complacent in our walks with Christ. It's It's a motivation for gratitude. We are safe and secure in the arms of Jesus Christ. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never lose us. So as we close in prayer, I'd like for you to just take a few moments, quietly say, God, thank you for the security that I have in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. Just take a few moments to thank him for that security. And if you know someone, if you have a friend or family member who doesn't know Jesus Christ, take a few moments and pray for that person that they would believe. And then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has issued to us a full and complete pardon. That he has paid the price for our entire debt. And that in in him we have absolute and perfect security. Father, I pray that that would drive us to an attitude of, of incredible gratitude. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we are secure in him. And I pray, Father, that that would motivate us to be fresh in our minds throughout this week as we walk with you. We'd walk in a manner worthy of that pardon. I thank you, Father, you've accomplished all of this fully and finally and completely for us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy his blessings this week.